Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We, as individuals, our human identity is incredibly complex. Amazingly so. Each one of us. In 1950, a woman in England or one born in England, a scientist, Rosalind Franklin, discovered what became a small crystal that we now know of as DNA. It's, it's the basis of human life. And you've probably seen pictures of it in a science textbook. It looks like, it looks like a little bit of a twisted ladder with different colors. Everything we need to know, apparently, about the human body is embedded in that thing called DNA. It's remarkable that it's all there. Recently, this thing called DNA was reproduced to represent one individual. Okay? So the individual, the subject, was used to reproduce DNA in printed form. The printout version of the complex DNA of one individual brought together an enormous group of books. As a matter of fact, 262,000 pages of single type single space, 10 character print. 262,000 pages of information to describe the DNA of one individual. There's a TED talk about this. If you know anything about TED talks, you could uh, Google it and find it easily. Ricardo Sabatini uh, gave a talk about this, 15 minute overview. Um, and in that talk, he described how this DNA had been printed in books. But he didn't start that way. He said, he said, we have one subject, and we have discovered his entire DNA, and we're going to bring him out 
this afternoon or evening. And so from behind the curtain, you see people start to come out. And he goes, oh, I don't mean whatever the guy's name was, in the flesh. I mean on paper. And so at least three individuals roll out. You've seen those library carts, right? In the library where you stack book after book after book after book. As I recall, it was at least three library carts full of books this thick. And he picked up one book after another. Of course, he had already selected the books. And he referred to things in the book. Now, I'm no scientist at all, but I'm just amazed by this. Apparently, our DNA composition consists of these four letters, A, T, C, and G. A combination of those letters in a particular order. Um, Ricardo Sabatini was trying to help his audience understand how complex one human being was. And he said, if we were to take the number of atoms that are in a human being and place them in a thumb drive, right? You all have some of these on your computer. Place them in a thumb drive. He said, these thumb drives would fill up the entirety of the Titanic. Hold it. Times 2,000. One human being. You know what else is fascinating? They can take the DNA of that one human being pretty much and capture it in something about this size called a vial of blood. And with that blood, they can predict without knowing the human subject from which the blood was extracted, they can predict with stunning accuracy his or her height, weight, age, and eye color just by looking at that vial of blood. He uh, pulled out one book and the camera zooms in on his finger and he's pointing to a place he's circled with an arrow. And he reads a succession of letters, those which I just mentioned. And then he said, this person is, is very lucky. Because if only two of those letters were missing, and I assume also I could ask somebody who knows better than I misplaced, this individual, represented by this book, would have cystic fibrosis. And so far, there's no cure for it. But he doesn't. He also picked up just one book, uh, thicker than the Bible that I hold, and he said, you know what makes us unique? One book. He went, half of this book. The rest of those volumes, some 261,500 pages, represent common humanity. In other words, everyone else has those. What makes us unique is only 500 pages. There are so many things you could say about that, right? It's just remarkable 
And your perspective would vary based on, well, your ontology or your metaphysics or your, can I say, your theology. I don't know anything about Riccardo Sabatini, but when Riccardo Sabatini began to describe DNA, honestly, I felt like the psalmist who said, the heavens declare the glory of God. But instead of it being the heavens, it was microorganisms. I actually worshipped God when I heard that. One of the great hopes of DNA's discovery is what is often referred to as the future of personalized medicine. So that instead of, instead of treating diseases in a generic sense, we may be in the future able to treat diseases in a much more individualistic sense, although we do this already to a certain extent. But down to DNA structures. So that when Bob has a particular disease, the physician can look at Bob's DNA and say, the way to cure Bob is this. The way to cure Brenda is that. By the way, um, the woman who is uh, known best for discovering the crystallized form of DNA that they created really for a picture, um, she did that in 1950. And by 1958, she was dead. And she was only 37 years old. Apparently, the reason for her ovarian cancer, there could have been some genetic problems, was the x-rays that she stood in front of day after day as she did her work. And it was before we understood the potency of x-ray. That's why you wear the lead vest now. But what's remarkable is that it is possible, maybe not in our lifetime, to treat diseases as individual diseases. Bob's disease, Fred's disease, Ann's disease. We are learning so much and discovering so much about medicine, it boggles the mind. That's a really long illustration to make one point. No matter what we discover in science, related to DNA or other realities that we haven't yet seen or discovered. I want to make a bold prediction. There's some basic questions about humanity that will remain. Because science cannot touch or understand the human soul. So what's going to remain are questions like these age-old questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And what is my purpose in life? They're still going to be there. And even though the Bible is no textbook of science, it actually addresses those issues. Who are you? 
Why are you here? What's your purpose in life? They're questions of identity, aren't they? And you know how the Bible answers those questions of identity? Not with fill-in-the-blank answers or multiple choice or letters. It answers it with stories. And in this case, in order to understand the image of God and the possibility for the image of God to be restored, we enter, as Paul did, into a story. Paul speaks about the resurrection, but he doesn't speak about the resurrection, which is the restoration of all things, unto itself. He speaks about the resurrection as he begins with Adam. Pre-resurrection. And he tells a story. Or should I say he alludes to a story? We have to tell the story by going back to Genesis 1 through 3. And what we know about the story of humanity in Genesis 1 through 3 is that there was a time where sin did not exist. I mean, as a part of the human condition. The characters in that story, you know well, are Adam and Eve. And it is said that they did not have sin. Sin had not affected them because it had entered the world. Because of that, they had a perfect relationship with God. Remember the image in the story of Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the garden with God? Uninterrupted, perfect fellowship with God. I mean, how many times, seriously, how many times in a friendship or in your marriage have you longed for perfect fellowship? Fellowship that did not find any effect from sin. We, we all long for that. That's why we work so hard at relationships. That's why we work so hard at our marriages. That's why we work so hard training our children. That's why we work so hard to be friends. In this previous to the resurrection reality called paradise, relationship with God was not tainted by sin. It was perfect. You know, we can't even imagine it. And I think it's probably good that the author of the book of Genesis didn't try to describe it. Because it's beyond description. But intuitively we know it, 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 it's possible for it to exist. So in that paradise place, there was perfect union between God and humanity. And humanity itself, in the flesh, was flawless. There was no disease or death for human beings. So the story reads. Which, as we get to the end of the story, we realize in retrospect, when sin comes into the world, what happened before sin is that there was the existence of a perfect life which was flawless and endless. 
there was no death. That's the story of Adam, or shall we say the first Adam, the way back story of humanity. But very quickly, in this story of humanity, things come apart. And they come apart because of sin, because of choices against God. And the result of sin, we see this image, thorns and weeds, thistles, embryer the earth. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, are garden lovers, right? You like to grow things. How great would it be to be able to nurture a plant, however that nurture looked, without weeds? Seriously, would that be awesome or what? I mean, I have something in my grass that's just driving me crazy right now. It's crabgrass. It's not real grass. It's, it's the result of the fall. I'm convinced of it. And it thatches and it overtakes. And I can't seem to get rid of it. And I know part of the problem because I didn't fertilize at the right time with the right material. And I know some of you are judging me for even thinking about using those chemicals to eradicate crabgrass. But I'm doing it anyway. I'm going to get it right next year. My point is, I love beautiful grass. Nobody mows my grass. Only time anybody mowed my grass is when I had a terrible fall and I couldn't do it myself. I like mowing my grass, and I want it to be perfectly green with no, le with no weeds. If I was a gardener, I'd want the same. That was the reality before the fall. Post-fall, weeds. Think of it not just as ground brush, but as an image, a metaphor for life, begin to invade everything. And it starts to destroy the perfect reality that was human existence. Of course, the other thing that invades when sin enters the world is disease and death. And every one of us have encountered in our bodies at least one of those, disease. Everybody here has had some form of disease, even if it's only the common cold. That, says Paul, is the result of sin. And death, of course, is the result of sin. And that's why in this uh, wonderful story, they were not supposed to eat of the tree of life so as to live together in sin. Because true life is to live apart from sin. Extended, endless life with sin would not be life at all. Not by God's definition. Now, sin has marred humanity irreparably. Its effects are all around us. Its effects are even in our earth itself. And here's the thing that sometimes is hard to accept. Paul says the sin of Adam, the sin of someone else, 
infused you with sin. The reason you are sinful is because of your first parents. The reason you continue to be sinful is because you live out the sin that is infused in you by the fall. Now, for some, that's hard to accept, especially modern-day people, right? But let me remind you of something. There's other places where we seem to have no problem accepting such images. Uh, one is this. Any physician I have ever gone to, unless they already knew me very well, asked me questions about my parents. Hmm? They want to know what the physical conditions of my parent was. Did someone die of this? Did someone have this disease? Did You know how the list goes. And they began to look at me and diagnose me, not just as an individual, but as an individual affected by my past. You know, I'm really glad they do that. Because if they just diagnosed me all by myself, they would miss a lot. I embrace that. If you are to encounter some psychological issues, or even if you, you know, maybe it'll happen to you someday, you decide to get married and you come to me for premarital counseling, we're going to talk about your parents. We're not going to talk about the medical condition to your parents, but we're going to talk about your parents. What I want to know is how did they interact with one another? What I want to know is how you interacted with them. And with that data, I begin to frame a picture for two bubbling with joy young people who think that life will always be beautiful and I'm diagnosing potential future problems. I'm just telling you I am. I'm not a professional psychologist, but I know enough about our relationships in the past to know that to some degree they defined our current reality. And you know what? I embrace that. And most of the time, so do you. So why is it so difficult for us to embrace the reality that we are not hermetically sealed individuals as it comes to morality? Why is it that we have the intuition or the instinct to say, no, it's all about me and all about my choices? Why are we the first to say, Adam can't pass on his sin to me. That's not right. I'm my own man. Maybe you haven't said that. But I know a lot of people who stumble over this doctrine. We seem to accept heredity in many other areas, but we want to resist heredity as it relates to sin. And that's precisely what Paul is saying here. 
He's saying part of your human DNA, in a spiritual sense, is sin. Deeply embedded sin. You don't come as a blank slate. You don't come out of the womb perfect, even though you look like it. You are embedded with sin from the beginning because of your first parents. I, I for one, maybe it's because I've lived this one so long, have no trouble with that at all. It makes perfect sense to me. But for some, it doesn't. And as a matter of fact, for ancient readers of this text, they wouldn't have batted an eye. Not at all. Why? Because for them, communal identity was perhaps more important, if not as important, as individual identity. For ancient uh, folks, you were defined by your ethnicity, your family, and even your tribe. It marked you in certain ways. Uh, still to this day, if you were to visit Africa, you will see some people with what appear to be a, a blemish on their forehead or another part of their body. It's not. It's not a blemish. It's a stamp of their tribe. That's who they are. So the ancient folks would not have had difficulty embracing this, but sometimes we do. That's Paul's message. We've been so damaged and marred by sin, our whole world and us as individuals, that we are irreparably harmed. But here's the good news. Sin, which is what irreparably harmed us and all of humanity can be overcome in the second Adam, namely Jesus Christ. And why is it overcome in the second Adam, namely Jesus Christ? Because that person in the flesh, God in the flesh, lived the perfect life that Adam never did, nor did any other human creature. And especially this, based on that perfection, he died the same death that we will die. And because of his perfection, because he was God in the flesh, he rose again. Now that in itself is an amazing story, but like DNA, before 1950, it doesn't even scratch the surface. It's not just about Jesus Coming back from the dead, that's a victorious story about an individual called Jesus Christ. Paul says there's more to the story than that. For those of you who believe that resurrection power to destroy sin and death is yours. Our past has already been overcome in Jesus Christ. The perfect restoration of humanity in us has been accomplished. Now you say, wait a minute, Bob. I don't look perfect, and I know people that die. Of course, it's because we live under the dominion of sin. But the final statement concerning our identity as human beings who call Christ Lord is that death is no longer our master. We are no longer slaves to sin. It doesn't mean that we do not sin. 
Consider Romans chapter 7, which I hope Dan will talk about a little bit next week. We continue to sin. We know that. But Paul says, why sin more so grace can abound? You're not supposed to do that. Why? Because you've been freed from the mastery of sin. You don't have to uh, live in it any longer. You don't have to serve the master of sin any longer. You've been given a new master, Jesus Christ. Paul even goes on to call us slaves of Christ. Now that's a stumbling block too, isn't it? It's a stumbling block because we've overcome slavery. Not really, because it's still out there, as we well know. But as a so-called civilized society, we don't endorse it anymore. Again, for a first century reader, when Paul uses this image, they know exactly what he means. Because at least 40% of the people in their area of the world were slaves. 40%. Slavery was a bit different in any culture that you might speak of, but slavery existed everywhere. Everyone, for the most part, had a master. Many of your masters were your masters because you were indebted to them. Instead of taking out a loan at the bank, when you didn't have the money to retain your property, you turned your life over to a wealthy person and became his slave. And when you paid off your debt, you were free. Or better yet, in the history of Israel, even if your debt hadn't been paid off, there was a thing called the year of Jubilee, and you were set free anyway. That was the reality of almost half the population who read this letter. They understood it. They knew that to be a slave meant that you served a master. And when they heard that sin used to be their master before Jesus Christ, and now Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who died in my place was my master, can you imagine the freeing reality of serving that master? Redefine slavery forever to serve my risen Lord. That's the reality that Paul says comes from our past. Not just the sin of Adam, but for those who claim Christ Jesus as Lord, the resurrection is ours. So we are slaves to the most loving, beautiful master who gave us life. I almost feel like I just should say amen. What else can you say? Here's the reality. Death is, is natural. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. We weren't created for death. We were created for life. Sometimes we struggle to understand, or what, understand what the image of God means. It means a lot of things. But the image of God also means eternal life. Is there anything more central to our definition of God than eternal life? And because of the resurrection, the image of God is thoroughly and completely 
restored. And we live again. Sin and death came through two doors. Imagine a door, not ones you select along a wall, but just one door. It takes you into a room. You walk through the first door. It's the door of Adam. And when you walk through that door, as all of us have, call it birth, we walk into the room of sin. And because sin came through Adam, we are ruled by sin. But think of a second door in that same room, other side. That door you walk through, that's the door of death. Adam opened the door that led us to sin. Sin itself opened up the door that led us to death. But there's a third door. It's called the second Adam, Jesus Christ. When you walk through that door, it's eternal life. Wow. <laughs> what a story. Quite early this morning, um, I got a call from hospice telling me that Dennis Terry had just passed away. And I went to be with Donna, and we comforted one another. And we prayed together. And we rejoiced. Because the reality is that the dentist who was there in that bed will someday be raised. And his body won't be affected by disease. And he will be a perfect dentist. Right now he's gone to be with the Lord. As Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But someday, like all believers, he will be raised. Not back to as good as it was. But back to better than you can imagine. That's the promise of the resurrection. That, in a way, is our past, our present, and our future. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so glad for the story of the gospel. We acknowledge it's on every page of this thing we call the Bible. Sometimes almost hidden beyond view, but it's there. Because this Bible is the story of grace. It's the story of the living word 
that we have trusted. And we pray, Lord, that you will restore our faith and our hope in the renewed image the renewed image of God in all of us. That we will be raised in the moment that is spectacular. As Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, it will be changed. And what was once corruptible will be incorruptible. Mortal will put on immortality, and we will live forever with you. For this we were made. We thank you for that hope. So to make it practical on Monday, Lord, help us to walk in the light of that grace. Help us to live lives of thanksgiving for the hope that is within us. And may we share that hope on the occasions that we are able with others who do not have it. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.